0: I'd like to pray one more time. It's not my usual place, Lord. Holy Spirit, I'm used to Madison Square Church. And these students here are here to hear from you. So I want to get your content right, I want to speak your words, and I'd like to get your tone right too. So that people actually hear from you. And I feel inadequate. And so Holy Spirit, come upon us for your word. Because of Jesus, the word. Amen. when when I was attending college here, it was some of the best days of my life. I loved my four years in college. I was away from my parents. I set my own schedule. I had friends here. Basically, I made a whole group of new friends. But it was... So it was a great time. You know how people talk about a certain time in their life. It's like the best of times and the worst of times. Well, the worst of times for me were that when I went to high school, I would read quite a bit, but I didn't study very much. I I can remember when I was a senior in high school and exams were coming and I'd put an hour or two in and I'd get my B, B- and that was good enough for me. I didn't really care. And then I came here and I found out I couldn't pull that off anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had to study, and then I really, I grew intellectually so much. I would look back at high school days, and I'd think to myself, I didn't know anything. I didn't really think about anything, not very deeply. And I was raised in a Christian home, and I went to Christian schools, and I committed my life to Christ when I was 14 years old. And... I'd had some, you know, uh, uh, difficult times in high school here and there, but then I got to college and I got faced with uh, doubt for the first time. And this text is about Satan using doubt to undermine faith. He actually says to Jesus a couple times, if you are the Son of God. So what happened to me is that when I got to college, I ran into some worldviews that I didn't really think through very much before. I can remember the worldview of behaviorism. And the author was B.F. Skinner. And I didn't read Christians talking about behaviorism. I actually read the authors. That's what you're supposed to do when you get educated, is actually read the original sources. So I read B.F. Skinner. And basically, to boil it down, it was this, that of course you believe what you will believe because you're in an environment, you're raised in West Michigan, and um, Christian talk and action is rewarded, and there's disincentives to act a different way. And if you were raised in China, you'd be an atheist, a communist, or... So it's, it's whatever behavior is rewarded or kind of planned for you. So it's not really true. It's maybe true for you and your setting. But if you were in a different setting, you just think differently. And it had kind of a ring of truth to it. Then it chipped away at my faith. And actually, I started to think, who am I? I used to say, I think I was... I'm Dave and I'm a Christian, and now... I'm still Dave Beeling, but who am I? Actually, I thought about it long enough and I thought, well, if B.F. Skinner says that there's not really truth and it's just like wherever you're raised and I think, well, he was raised in a certain place so what he's saying maybe not isn't true either and, and so, you know, <laughs> right? Just left me confused. Then, then I started reading Marx and Lenin and and then I read what Marx said about faith, or the Christian faith, and he basically said, to boil it down, simplify it, it's an opiate of the people. So the ruling class loves the Christian faith because it basically says, you know, if you're oppressed right now and and you're poor and life's all messed up, well, it's okay because, you know, you suffer right now but you have a reward in heaven. So you get your pie by and by in the sky, so just be cool. Well, that kind of works really good if you're in charge. And then it had kind of a ring of truth. And it, so it, it chipped away at my faith. And I, I started to really wonder, man, I'm starting to run into these new ideas. And, and it didn't look so solid anymore. I did think about um, what I heard about what was going on in communist countries that now there was a new ruling elite and they're atheistic and they're telling people stuff and keeping them oppressed too. So... Yeah, they weren't practicing it all that well. Then I ran into Freud. And Freud basically said about the Christian faith is that, you know, we have this, this structure in our psychology and you've got this thing called superego, and it's like um, your father figure. Even if you didn't have a very good father, you know what fathers are supposed to be like and fathers give you comfort and assurance and that everything's so, sort of under control and then you grow up and find out fathers don't know, really know. Right? They're not in control. But then you, you extrapolate or project that there's this great Father up in heaven and you know, that just helps you. It's sort of your crutch in life. And it had kind of a ring of truth for it and it chipped away at my faith. I'm going to tell you later what happened. It was about a year and a half of that. What happened to me, how, I, how God rescued me out of it. I hated being in that doubt period. The problem is I couldn't just fix it. I couldn't think my way out of it and I couldn't read my way out of it. And I didn't believe it anymore and I didn't believe this other stuff either and I didn't know what to do. Now, part of the other problem was that I was going to LCB. You guys know what LCB is? Is it still there? It's Last Chance Bar. Maybe it's not here anymore. By the name of it, you'd think, stay away, right? Especially if you're going through doubt. If you're thinking about Freud, don't go to LCB. We, and I just drank too much. When I was here, by the way, the drinking age legally was 18 years old. Not on campus, but if you went off campus, 18 years old. It's 21 now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> here's, here's the logic behind it. There was a draft on in those days, and if you could get drafted into the army and the, and, the, and the society would trust you with a gun to go defend the United States, then they ought to be able to trust you with a beer as well. That was the logic behind it. So it passed just before I got to college, just in time, so to speak. And um, by the way, it's not insignificant that I was living that kind of life Because if you read the Bible carefully, especially in Ephesians chapter 4, if you're living that kind of life, I know just alcohol in itself isn't the point here, but I I I was living a sort of party life, and then coming, we didn't have loft, but something like loft at the time, and I was doing the double thing. So put that all together, I was kind of messed up. If you notice the scripture passage, the first two temptations, this is what Satan says If you are the Son of God. What he does is he goes after Christ's sense of identity and he basically says, Don't believe God. Because if you go just before in chapter 3, what's happening there is that God comes down and says to Jesus and whoever's listening, this is my Son. I love Him. In Him I am well pleased. Next thing that happens is that Satan comes in and says, if you are the Son of God, and undermines what God had just said. Basically, what Satan loves to do is to undermine what God said. Don't believe it. And this is a biblical pattern. So what does Satan say in the Garden of Eden? Any of you know? You can talk back to me. What's the first thing he said? You probably won't do that because if you're wrong. Did God really say? So, Satan loves doubt. God doesn't. Satan says, don't trust God. You just go back there in the beginning and you see, you won't really die if you eat that. So he undermines what God says. He keeps undermining what God says. Now, I want to talk to you about whether or not you even believe there's a devil and a demon. Whether there really is a... a per, whether you have demons in your life. I had a hard enough time even believing there was a God. Much less a devil. Now I, I want to show up on the screen what C.S. Lewis says in his... In the introduction to his book. What's it called again? Screwtape Letters. Where a senior devil is instructing a junior devil on how to tempt human beings. So, I've got a picture of C.S. Lewis, too. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, in a Christian liberal arts college in 2014, which side are we tempted to be on? Disbelieve, right? Now you might say you believe in devils but how many of you in the last week does it even cross your mind when something happened oh this might be demonic? Now unless Calvin College has changed a whole lot since when I got here <laughs> you know you might have a few Pentecostals and Charismatics around here but even them probably sort of quiet down because you know it's, the cultural feel around here is not so much that way I would guess Unless you've changed a lot. So in our creeds we say there's a devil and in the scripture that was just read we say there's a devil but it makes no practical difference in our lives which is exactly the way he wants it. Look, if I was trying to let's say I was trying to I don't know, I won't pick anyone out here but All right, let's go this way for a minute. I was trying to have a fight with you. I was trying to defeat you, right? One way is to just come up, you know, bulk up and and go to the gym and, you know, I'm after you, I'm going to get you, right? Another way is for me to um, actually have the power to disappear or to be invisible. What one would be more effective? Be invisible, obviously. Can't see him coming, can't see him going. Isn't the devil a deceiver? So if he's got our whole culture deceived, he's not really around, that's just great. Now let me do a little piece of, of um, systematic theology in the middle of this sermon. And I want to show a continuum now, if you can put that next slide up. Okay, if, if this would work with, um, if we could do it with large print, it would actually start with sinful nature on this end and go all the way to possession on this end. So it's actually meant to be a continuum with, with four stops in it. Sinful nature, temptation, oppression, possession. So let me just go through that quickly. A lot of um, the mess we get in our life is just our sinful nature. It's what the Bible sometimes calls flesh. So if you have an older version of the Scripture, it'll use the word flesh to describe... um, And by the way, flesh isn't about... like. like gluttony and lust and body sins only. In, in fact, if you go to Galatians chapter 5, most of the sins of the flesh or the sinful nature are actually mind sins, like hatred and envy and, and those sorts of things. Okay, so But you know what? You and I, you can mess your life up without any help from the devil and make a total mess of it. In fact, if you read carefully in the Bible... Um, Like, for example, you go to the book of Romans, which is Paul's um, catechism, so to speak. It's the closest thing you get in the Bible to, here's what the Christian faith is, from A to Z. So it's 16 chapters. You know how many times Satan is mentioned in the book of Romans? Once. In the last chapter. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now, it doesn't mean that dark powers don't show up once in a while. In fact, in the quotation from Romans chapter 8 tonight... The phrase was rulers, what can separate us from the love of God? Um, In all these things we are more than conquerors. For I'm convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor, she read rulers, I've memorized it as demons, right? Nor any powers, what kind of powers? Light powers and dark powers. So it shows up in other places of the book of Romans. Here's my point. When you you look at the scriptural teaching, most of the mess in your life, Satan doesn't even need to bother with you. You're making a mess just fine all by yourself. Then there's temptation. And that's the word that's used here for Jesus. You're you're tempted. Okay? Now, demons can't read your minds, only God's omniscient. But demons also don't live like 70 years or, or if by reason of strength, 80 They're spirits. They live for thousands of years. And they might tempt your grandfather for 80 years and now it's on to the next generation. I don't know. I'm supposing. We don't know that much about the demonic world. But they've been around a long time and they probably can watch everything you do. If I watched you for 10 years in a row, 24 hours a day, I'd pretty well be able to figure out what you're going to do or say next. So I can throw temptations your way. The next level, and this is even more serious, is oppression. When you're oppressed. And especially, not, I'll just name two sins, that if they're habitual and you're in a rut, you probably will be close to or could have a problem with oppression of demons in your life. And then it's not just tempting. It's, it's like they got you in a stranglehold sexual sins alcohol and drug abuse some of this i just know by talking to people and being in being a pastor for all these years it's like a sin you just can't get out of you confess and you go back into it and you confess and you go back into it and every one of you have sins like that they're like habitual they're like your achilles heel And if you just give in to them and you're not fighting them, Satan can use that to oppress you. And then there's the final one way over here, and that's possession, where you're just full demonic involvement. In in 30 years of ministry, I've done three exorcisms. I didn't get trained, by the way, at Calvin Seminary to do exorcisms. I should have. Actually, that tells you something. If you're going to be a pastor and the church, seminary, that's training you, doesn't even train you in this stuff. I learned this later. And doesn't train you to do exorcisms? What's up with that? Why do we have in our creed, and question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, some of you have got raised in that, what's your only comfort in life and death? That I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. Listen to this. He has fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood. Takes care of item number one, sinful nature. Fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood. What's the next phrase? Set me free from the tyranny of the devil. So I get trained in the theology, but I don't get trained do how to do exorcisms. Well, let me get back to, I've done three exorcisms. I'm very careful that I do a lot of discernment because you can't cast out the sinful nature you can't cast out mental illness, but you also can't medicate demons. And you can't just, you know, become more obedient. You're actually under their power. Now, here's, here's the thing. If the Holy Spirit lives in you and you're possessed by Christ, you actually belong to Him. Back to the Heidelberg Catechism question one, answer one. Who are you? I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't belong to the Holy Spirit and the unholy spirit at the same time. But if you're not really a believer, you can be possessed. Now, there's actually some theologians that would argue with me about that and say that Christians can be possessed. I think they're wrong. I think they're biblically wrong. And sometimes it's hard to make the distinction between the two. Okay, that was like a little systematic theology lesson in the middle of a sermon. Let's put that down for now. Part of the reason I wanted to do it, though, is because the Scripture teaches, treats Satan as real. Do you. And if you don't, he's got you where he wants you. All right, now what does Jesus do with this? What does Jesus do with this encounter? I think it's very interesting that he keeps answering It is written. What do you do when you feel not just doubt, but you feel a kind of darkness surrounding it? And that's what happened to me when I was here. I I felt dirty. I didn't just doubt. I felt dirty. Let me do another by the way here. I think parents and pastors and teachers and coaches who get anxious when you ask questions about the Christian faith even when you push it I think that's that's poor leadership you ought to be able to ask any question you want you ought to be able to express your doubts but doubts aren't cool They're actually an avenue for Satan to start to unravel your foundation and sense of who you are. You don't even... You hear the Bible read and you're not even sure it's the Word of God anymore. Um, When I was doing study for this sermon, I came across uh, my favorite commentary on Matthew, and that's where this passage is from. And here's one of the things he says. His name is Dale Bruner. He says, "...care needs to be taken lest we glorify doubt." and make doubt seem more mature, advanced than faith. Then he goes on. Doubt of God is not a virtue. The praise of doubt is sometimes full, especially in college settings. And when I read that, I thought, I'm going to quote that on Sunday night at Loft. I think some of you are here, because you've, you need to doubt your doubts. I think God's saying to you, why don't you trust me? I want you to trust me. Trust me. Believe my word. Now if your parents were her, your pastors were here, and you all weren't here, and I might say to them, let your students talk about their doubt. Come on. If we believe the faith is real and it's grounded in reality and the Word of God is sure and it'll prove itself, well, then let them ask questions. But they're not here. You're here. I actually started to fall in love. I thought doubting was hip and cool. And I just, it just got darker for me. Here's one of the things that happened to me. I didn't cry for a year and a half. And I also didn't feel joy for a year and a half. I got blah for a year and a half. Except when I went to LCB. Last Chance Bar. What's that? You see, I was messed up. Back to what Jesus says. He says, it is written and what i find interesting about that is because i think jesus wants us to watch what he's doing and figure out how to defeat doubt in our life and defeat satan and when they team up doubt and satan when they team up he didn't talk about you know jesus is god so he could have said i say in fact in other places he says you've heard it said it's written you shall not commit adultery but i say to you he's the word himself he didn't even do that. He said, what is written down? What's actually in the Word? What's in print? That's what I'm going to appeal to for authority. I know who I am. God just told me, you are my son. So he defeats this temptation of doubt by saying, not something within himself. And I'm saying to you, don't look within yourself yourself. Look outside of yourself. And that's counterintuitive too to the way human beings are. That's what Satan tried to do in the garden was um, figure it out on your own. You, you, go, go to that tree right there. Uh, you decide what's good and right and what's evil and what's good instead of trusting God. Now, my identity got undermined satan's trying to identi- uh, undermine Jesus identity that's what happens when doubt comes around is you, your own identity gets shaken ask me once who are you go ahead talk to me go ahead someone say who are you okay i am a child of god i'm a husband of melanie I'm a father of Kendra Jackson and Acacia and I'm a pastor of Madison Square Church that's who I am I want you to notice that every one of those includes public vows okay I'm a child of God when I was 14 years old I didn't think I'm going to keep my options open I said I'm a Jesus follower I'm a husband of Melanie. I made public vows. I didn't say, I'm going to keep my options open. No, I said, I'm going to get wed locked to you. And then three children. And at baptism, I made baptismal vows to them, which basically said, I don't have my options open anymore at 2 a.m. in the morning, and you're crying, I'm getting out of bed. And you have claim on my time. And then, fourthly, I'm not keeping my options open. I'm your pastor. Once again, at two in the morning, you can call me. I heard someone preach on this thing about identity and wondering who you are. When I was in college, and he he said... He was actually a college professor, and he said it happens every time of year, right around spring break time. A student comes in to me, and they sit down, and, and they say, um, I'm just having a hard time. I, I, um, I need to find myself. I, I, don't, I don't know who I am. And he says, he knows what comes next. They're going to quit school, and they're going to go out west. And they seem, he said to me, they always go to Boulder, Colorado. You'd think at least one student would come back and say, you know, I made it to Boulder and there's the city limits and it said Boulder City Limits and there I was. (laughs) He says, no, you don't find yourself by quitting school and going on a road trip. You find who you are by making commitments. Actually, we find who we are. This is reformed theology here by understanding how God made a commitment to us. So here's what happened to me. I heard it is written, you are one of God's children. Now after about a year and a half, so it's getting to be December, so I'm talking now about the time when I was in so much doubt and and darkness, and I was feeling um, demonically messed up too. I went home to our home church for Christmas break. And I couldn't wait to get home to eat my mother's food. I don't know how the food is now here, but back then it was bad. (laughs) And uh, so I don't know why I said that, but I'm just remembering going home that time. And (laughs) my mom would, you know, call him on the phone and I'd go home and We lived in Muskegon, not far away from here, but she'd make my favorite meal. And that was probably a Thursday or Friday, and I went to church that Sunday morning. And um, this was a Christian Reformed church, and some of you, I think, have gotten raised in the Christian Reformed church, and they didn't do altar calls there. Like, once every five years, there was an altar call. And I didn't really like the church that much. They didn't sing our music. There seemed to be so many naive people, oh, Jesus, 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 you know, it's kind of, so surpy and sweet and you don't even think about your faith and what about all those people dying and they were like racist too and I just didn't like them. I didn't like their music and um but you know you're home so you go to church right? You want to have a confrontation. So I went to church and I'm sitting there and music wasn't that bad that Sunday and I think because of my mother's cooking I was feeling more warm about everything and then, and then the sermon started, and um, while I'm there, I'm in an argument with God. And one of the things that occurs to me is like, look, if you don't really believe God exists, why are you having an argument with Him in church? So that was kind of a dawning thing on me, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm miserable. And I heard God, you know, this is how... God speaks to Christian Reformed people. He does it kind of in their mind and with their thoughts. And we hear them. It just takes a while, right? Pulling your leg now. And so I'm hearing God. And basically, this is what the kind of thoughts that he's using in me is, is, you know what? Just give it up. Why don't you surrender? You need to surrender to me. It's a trust problem with you. I want you to trust me. You're not going to think your way out of this. Trust me. And then believe it or not, the pastor has an altar call. And they're singing, I surrender all. (laughs) So I actually went forward and I wept for the first time in a year and a half. The reason I'm telling you this is there's at least one person in here who's struggling with doubt. In fact, I don't know how many, a couple, 300 of you. At least 10% of you are, that's 30 of you. And Satan's after you. And he'll use it. He loves D words. He loves doubt, divorce, discouragement, depression, death. Holy Spirit loves our words. Repent, renew, reconcile. You've been in death and discouragement and doubt long enough. Now, I'd like to close with a Remembering, some of you say, I don't remember this. Well, I'm talking about remembering like a thousand years ago or more. The baptismal statements of faith that our spiritual forefathers and mothers used to do when people would profess their faith. They'd take Satan very seriously. So what I'd like you to do is stand right now. And worship team, if you could get ready, because we're going to go right into a song afterwards. And I'm just going to, we're just going to go through this. So they would actually, part of a profession of faith or a coming to Jesus or a, a public statement of your faith is that you would, you would go through a question after question and, and you would say um, the responses with a strong voice. So I'm going to ask the questions and I invite you to speak the responses and then sort of draw from these ancestors in the faith that go thousands of years back and say what they said. They said them in other languages, Greek and Latin and Spanish and so forth. Okay, so here's the question. Since devils can't read our minds, we're going to tell them what we think. Do you reject the devil and all rebellion against God? I reject them. Do you renounce the deceit and corruption of evil? Do you repent of the sins that separate us from God and neighbor? I repent of them. Do you turn to Christ as our Savior? I turn to Christ. Do you submit to Christ as Lord? I submit to Christ. Do you come to Christ the way, the truth, and the life? I come to Christ. Amen. Amen.